I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, I'm Mitt Romney. My staff has asked me to talk to you today about bullying, how bad it's gotten. And I agree. It has gotten bad. It's terrible, in fact. Nobody knows how to bully effectively anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Governor uh, Romney? It's true. And to the bullies of today, I say I understand. I was a bully all through high school and middle school and elementary school. I know it's not easy coming up with fresh taunts every day for the shy kid with teeth like a prairie dog. But you know you dig deep. And hey, ground squirrel, it's another name for prairie dog. Work pays off. Okay, Governor Romney, I'm not sure you understood what we were asking you to do. It's about teamwork. You need teamwork to get the job done. You see, back in the day, I would routinely work with a group or gang of other like-minded students. And we would target specific individuals for pranks like... Operation Atomic Nipple Twister, Puff the Magic Dragon, the Sticky Palm Maneuvers, and the Coup de Gras, Poultry Pants Magoo, which was when we'd just jam an entire chicken into some nerd's chinos. Classic stuff. As your president, I will do the same thing, only this time to, you know, other countries. Like President Hu Jintao of China. I'll show him human rights. The right to get a live chicken jammed down his pants. Sir, sorry to interrupt again, but this isn't about how bullying is bad as in low quality. It's about how bullying is bad as in wrong, like morally. Oh. Oh, right. Of course. I knew that. What was I thinking there? (laughs) Bullying is wrong. Right. And no one should do it. Ever. Unless it's funny. Or an effective means of garnering a foothold in a strategic oil-rich area. I give up. And now back to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Oh, look. It's this skinny little runt who played trombone in my high school's jazz fusion ensemble. It's, it's... Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire, the radio show that's wearing its band uniform right now. Tonight, sometimes a great movie author, Matt Love, Kelly Carlin with A Carlin Home Companion, and music from the Aaliyah Louie Choir. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience, and in just one hour, the amount of time Vladimir Nabokov spent hanging out at Lolita's bus stop before the cops arrived, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show, and music from our house band, The Mutton Chops. Jim. As I mentioned earlier, we are going to have Matt Love on the show later. Matt wrote a book 
about the making of sometimes a great notion that has some pretty great Paul Newman tales in it. And we also have Kelly Carlin, who will perform a snippet of her highly successful one-woman show illustrating what life was like with her iconoclastic father, George Carlin. But before we get to all that, I wanted to talk about some pretty significant recent news. As anyone knows who hasn't been napping or in Greenland for the past few days, President Obama said recently that he believed that same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. Which Oregon enjoys. Um, And I, I, I thought two things when I heard that he'd said it. One, this is a historic day. And two, Joe Biden is so totally getting the silent treatment from the president right now. I'm not sure how many cookie bouquets vice presidential protocol requires when you force the president's hand on a same-sex marriage announcement that was supposed to take place months later, but let's just say Obama's not going to be wanting for snickerdoodles until well into 2014. So my reaction was pretty detached when I, when I heard the news, but then when I actually watched him say it, I have to say I, I, was, I was pretty moved. And I know a lot of people think that it was a calculated political move or that it doesn't matter what he believes if he's not going to take action on it, that it's not going to change things, but it already has changed things because the very fact that he said it means sentiment has changed enough in the country that he thinks it's finally safe for him to do so. And that's significant no matter how you look at it. But there are, of course, many people who strongly oppose same-sex marriage. I actually visited the National Organization for Marriage website, which it turns out is actually the National Organization for Heterosexual Marriage website, uh, where they have talking points for their members to discuss the issue with other people. And one of the talking points was... Gays and lesbians have the right to live as they choose. They just don't have the right to redefine marriage for the rest of us. And I don't want to seem judgy, but it just seems that denying millions of people basic rights so that you can define a word in the way that you choose seems a bit extreme. I mean, as a culture, we're comfortable with all kinds of words having multiple meanings. Store means both a place to buy things and the action of putting away the things that you just bought. A fan is both an apparatus with rotating blades and a Justin Bieber enthusiast. (laughs) Bad can either mean great or awful. Words like people can contain multitudes. And I know that's not always a good thing. There are people who think disincentivize, misunderestimate, and orientated our words, and I still believe that they are worthy of basic human rights, although it really hurts to say that. So we all have our reasons to believe what we believe, and regardless of where you stand on the issue, we know that the real test of whether or not this means anything will come in November when people on both sides who have been re-energized in equal measure by the announcement duke it out at the polls. But for my friend Joyce, who grew up in Alabama in the 50s, and whose son Stephen came out about 25 years ago, it was, surprisingly, as she put it, no big whoop. I'm way over that, she said. Of course, I'm very happy that the president came to the conclusion that most intelligent people came to 20 or 30 years ago. But this just wasn't a big day for me. A long time ago, there was a day when I was very happy that there were a lot of people who accepted my son into their arms for who he was. My friends, my family, even myself. Now that was a big day. So while the president did say something historic last week, it seems the real historic moments are the ones happening all over the country every day. The Aliyah Louia Choir is the beautiful result of what band members thought would be just a one-time collaboration on a CD to benefit the historic Lone Fir Cemetery. Adam Shearer and Adam Seltzer of the bands Wineland and Norfolk and Western got together and then later brought in Aliyah Farah to help with the three-part harmonies. Now, they've actually formed a band, the three of them, whose creative manifesto includes only doing the fun stuff, so it never feels like work. And even though it almost felt like work to do it, they recently released their first album on Jealous Butcher Records, along with a gorgeous and haunting video for their song, A House, A Home, and the song was also recently featured on Sci-Fi's Being Human. Please welcome the Aaliyah Louie Choir to Livewire. Wire. 
with the patience of a mother's baby bird. She was waiting for a moment, was almost within reach. It doesn't seem to matter as the days roll slowly by. She would stand there with her head high. She would bury all misfortunes down below. Oh, oh, oh. Thank you very much. The Aaliyah Louia Choir. You're listening to Live Wire, and if you just tuned in, that is unfortunate because you just missed Wynton Marsalis playing trumpet with his nose. But there is still more to come. Stay tuned for author Matt Love, writer and performer Kelly Carlin. More from the Alleluia Choir and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Here in Portland, Oregon, fox squirrels have established themselves in both urban and suburban habitats. 
reddish-brown in colour with large bushy tails and tan underbellies, they are the largest species of tree squirrel native to North America. There's one now. Listen closely. Fox squirrels have a large vocabulary, consisting most notably of an assortment of clucking and chucking sounds. In the spring and fall, groups of fox squirrels clucking and chucking together can make quite a small ruckus. They also make high-pitched whines during mating. This squirrel is a particularly handsome fellow with perky ears and keen, bright eyes. He approaches a family on a nearby porch, his tail twitching. Squirrels take advantage of accessible attics, chimneys, basements and crawl spaces, both to raise young and escape the winter cold. This sometimes causes friction with the resident family. But as our squirrel stands on the porch railing with head cocked, this family appears to find him appealing. Look, Daddy, he's so cute. Can we feed him? The child holds back but insists that the father approach the squirrel with a small piece of bread. What the father doesn't realize is that he and this fox squirrel has met before. That sort of looks like that squirrel that we had trapped last fall. Don't remind me, honey. The scratching every night. I thought I was going to lose my mind. Sometimes I think I can still hear them up there. Yeah, I thought wildlife control took him to the Mount Hood wilderness area and released him. You don't think he found his way back, do you? (laughs) Squirrels aren't that smart, honey. Oh, give him the bread, Daddy. Okay. Here you go, you little SOB. Eat up. But you better stay out of my attic, because next time there won't be any catch and release. Having returned from an arduous seven-month journey home from the Mount Hood wilderness area, the squirrel has been monitoring the man's comings and goings for days with a sophisticated system of surveillance cameras and tiny night vision goggles. Now that the man is exposed, the squirrel makes his move. The man does not see the squirrel uncoil a spool of piano wire hidden in his cheek. The fox squirrel stands on its hind legs. The man extends his hand, and then... (laughs) We have just witnessed an assassination. It's not pretty, but nature rarely is. So goes the circle of life. The squirrel, triumphant and exhausted, his desire for revenge quenched, returns to his den in the family's attic, where he is greeted warmly by his mate. His young are safe, and they will have a home through the winter. That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, with sound effects by David Ian, and a sketch written by Chelsea Kane, thriller writer. Our next guest is an author, a columnist, and the founder of Nestuka Spit Press. His latest book, Sometimes a Great Movie, Paul Newman, Ken Kesey, and the filming of the great Oregon novel, combines memoir, primary documents, oral history, film criticism, and photos to illustrate what he refers to as a wild working vacation between Hollywood and Oregon during the filming of Kesey's novel, Sometimes a Great Notion, in June of 1970. Tonight, Matt Love will give you a taste of that book, as well as a musical interlude from solo artist Michael Dean Damron. Please welcome Matt Love to Livewire. Not long after Ken Kesey died in 2001, I staged a private wake for my literary hero by visiting the Bay Haven, an ancient tavern on Newport's Bayfront. There I noticed a poster of photographs from sometimes a great notion, the movie. 
The cinematic adaptation of Kesey's novel starred Paul Newman. It was filmed in Lincoln County on the Oregon coast in the summer of 1970 and included scenes shot in the Bay Haven, which stood in for the snag saloon from the novel. It's pretty much a cult film in the Northwest, but has disappeared from the spotlight and was never mentioned outside of Oregon when Newman passed away in 2008. It was raining that afternoon, which was perfect because sometimes The Great Notion is the greatest novel in the history of world literature on the subject of rain. I sat down on a swiveling wood stool and looked around at the tavern, admiring all the fishing and logging memorabilia that decorated the place. It was right out of Kesey's novel, and I felt like the jukebox should have been playing some of the classic honky-tonk folk music from the 40s and 50s that inhabits the novel. Eddie Arnold... Governor Jim Davis, Hank Snow, Jimmy Rogers, Burl Ives, and Lead Belly, who immortalized the classic folk song, Goodnight Irene. I'd read the novel and watched the movie several times. I could never understand how Newman, who also produced and directed the film, didn't use honky-tonk and folk music in the movie. Instead, he hired Henry Mancini of Pink Panther fame, to score the film's soundtrack. And the result is terrible. It's gutless. Something Kesey would never have listened to. It doesn't even include Goodnight Irene, the song Kesey derived the title of the novel from. Sometimes I live in the country Sometimes I live in the town Sometimes I get a great notion to jump in the river and drown. Yeah, I asked the bartender and a few other patrons if they'd seen the movie. They all had, and they all agreed that the most memorable scene was when one of the characters, Joe Ben, drowns under a log in the estuary as the tide rises. I also asked if they'd read the novel, which unfolds the epic story of the family of loggers, the Stampers, embroiled in conflicts with each other and their community. The novel takes place on the Oregon coast and is a dense, sprawling, manic 600-page book with multiple narrators, looping storylines, and a stream of consciousness explosions of nature that pretty much make it the greatest novel ever set in the Pacific Northwest. Many readers never finish it. But those who do become fanatics and read it like scripture. Now, as we talked about the book and the movie, a bearded man wearing a red baseball cap emerged from an alcove sheltering the video poker machines. He moved toward me holding a hams can and sat next to me at the bar. He said he had a story, a story about Paul Newman. Would I like to hear it? Yes, I would. I ordered him another hams and the bartender produced it with stunning alacrity. I looked at the man. He appeared anywhere from 40 to 70 years old. Or what I call OTA, Oregon Tavern Age. The story went, one rainy night in 1970, the man was drinking in a tavern in Toledo, eight miles east of Newport. In walked an unaccompanied Paul Newman carrying a chainsaw. He was wearing a fake chest, said the man. The man explained that Newman wore some kind of padding under his shirt to appear bulkier. That Newman was still wearing the padding and carried the chainsaw meant he probably came right off location in and around Toledo where many scenes in the movie were shot. The man moved closer to me. He looked me straight in the eyes. This was serious. According to the man, Newman didn't say anything. The patrons recognized him because, well, at the time, he was the biggest movie star in the world. He also had a notorious reputation in the industry for being one of the biggest practical jokers in the history of Hollywood, such as the time he used an arc welder to cut a producer's sports car in half, or the time he used a chainsaw and destroyed the desk of the director of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because of a dispute over a liquor tab. Newman fired up the chainsaw. He sawed the legs off the pool table and sent the slate crashing to the floor. 
he left without saying a word. <laughs> Come on, you're kidding me, I said. I reminded him of the scene from the movie where Newman's character enters a union office with a chainsaw and cuts up the place. I know that scene, he said. That was acting in a bar in Toledo. Newman was there. He was drunk out of his mind. I have no reason to lie. I don't even know you. A few minutes later, the man disappeared, and I never got his name. I drank my beer. I ordered another one. Then I walked out of the Bay Haven, dazed, wondering if this fantastic story was true. I didn't investigate it back then, but knew one day I would undertake a mission to discover if Paul Newman really did enact the greatest drinking story in Oregon history. <laughs> the mission is over. And in my new book, Sometimes a Great Movie, Paul Newman, Ken Kesey, and the filming of the great Oregon novel, I hunt down the legend and discover the truth. I know what happened that night in Toledo. You have to buy the book. <laughs> I'm not going to give it away. But one thing I don't understand about the movie is the omission of Goodnight Irene. Well, tonight on Livewire, we redress this oversight, and I have just the gritty, bluesy, hard-working, logger-type, Oregon punk rock and roller for the job. Yeah. He's standing to my right. His, ladies and gentlemen, now, Michael Dean Damron will now perform Goodnight Irene the way I believe Ken Kesey would have loved to hear it in the Snag Saloon on a black stormy night and to quote the best line from Sometimes a Great Notion, give me a dark, smeary, shiny night full of rain. That's when the fear starts. That's when you sell the juice. Goodnight, Irene. Goodnight. Good night, Irene. Good night. Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dreams. Sometimes I live in the country. Sometimes I live in a town. Sometimes get a great notion to jump in the river and drown good night Irene good night good night Irene good night good night Irene good night Irene I'll see you in my dreams well, I asked your mama for you. She told me you was too young. Now, I don't ever want to see your face no more. I wish I never was born. Good night, Irene. Good night. Good night, Irene. Good night, good night Irene, good night Irene, I'll see you in my dreams, Irene you know I love you, and I will till the seas all run dry, but if Irene turns her back on me, I'll just take this morphine and die Good night, Irene Good night Good night, Irene Good night Good night, Irene Good night, Irene I'll see you in my dreams I'll see you in my dreams I see you. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. Bad Love and Michael Dean Damron. If you're in the Portland area, 
Matt will speak at the May 26th screening of Sometimes a Great Notion at the Hollywood Theater. You're listening to Livewire on KOPB Portland, KOAC Astoria, KOBK Baker City, KOAP Lakeview, KOAB Bend, KOGL Lincoln City, KOTD The Dalles, KOGL Glen Eden Beach, KTMK Tillamook, KXOT Seattle, KUT2 Austin, WCPN Cleveland, WNJR Washington, Pennsylvania. KHEU Greenland, KJPO Tokyo, KCVT Lunar Base 7, KLQR Papillon Prison Colony, KTGC Gotham City, KTIL Mikey Baxter's Treehouse, KATH Underwater City of Atlantis, KTEK The Filling in My Tooth, KMDI Limbo, WGLI, High Pitch for Dogs Only Radio. WCND, The Funky Coffee House with the Barista Who Has the Nice Arms. WGDI, Mordor. KCHI, Your Chiropractor's Office. KOSF, That Old Spooky Farmhouse Out Past Briarback Road. WTAV, Pyongyang. KUVL, Hoth. KAPN, Skyrim. KYTP, The Island on Lost, and KRBM, Pendleton. Thanks for tuning in. Next on the show is a writer, a radio show host, a producer, a solo show performer, and the daughter of one of the most influential comedic iconoclasts in American history. Kelly Carlin started her show business career working as a professional Xeroxer on her father George Carlin's HBO specials. Since then, she's written for television and film. She's worked as a producer for the great Showtime series The Green Room with Paul Provenza. She has a weekly podcast, Waking from the American Dream, and she also hosts the Kelly Carlin Show monthly on Sirius XM Radio. Tonight, she brings us a snippet of her highly successful solo show, A Carlin Home Companion, which tells her tale of growing up with a loving father who, as the LA Weekly pointed out in their glowing review, didn't always know best. Please welcome Kelly Carlin to Livewire. One day in 1973, when I was about 10 years old, my dad came into my bedroom. Kelly, wake up. I have something important to tell you. I startled from a deep sleep and sat straight up. You see, between this intense career pressure and my mom's drinking and my parents' drugging, my parents had been arguing every waking moment. And with the amount of cocaine they were doing back then... That was a lot of waking moments. (laughs) And so I braced myself for the obvious. Kelly, I think the sun has exploded and we have seven minutes to live. (laughs) What? Now, I knew my dad had been doing a lot of drugs and was probably just freaking out or something, you know. And, And besides, I mean, he was my dad and I was his daughter and I worshipped him, so I thought... Okay, uh, maybe we should go outside and check. So my parents and I made our way through my parents' bedroom. They had these really, really thick curtains in their bedroom because they were sleeping all day, all the time. And when we got outside, the sun was so bright. I mean, mean, you could barely squint your eyes open. It was too painful. It was just horrible. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, what if he's right? Oh, my God, is this really happening? Contrary to the evidence, my father was actually a very rational man. He decided that we needed to find out if this phenomena was happening anywhere else on the planet. He said, you know what, we could call Doc on the East Coast, but there's a three-hour time difference on the East Coast, and I don't think the phenomena of the sun exploding on the East Coast might be different than it is here. No, you know what, we need someone on this coast. We need to call Joe Bellardino in Sacramento. Hey, Joe, Joe, it's George. Yeah, uh, yeah, hey, I need you to do me a favor. 
Yeah, I need you to go outside and check and see if the sun is okay. Yeah, uh, I think it may have exploded. Yeah, yeah, do you think you could hurry though? I don't think we have a lot of time. He's checking. Now, like all the other weird stuff that was going on in my life at the time, I could not go to school the next day and tell people what was going on in my household. So, Kelly, how was your Easter vacation? I don't know. The usual. <laughs> Kelly Garland. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you. This is so fabulous. <laughs> well, th- thanks for being here. That was such a touching family story, isn't it? Poignant. Deep. Yes. <laughs> Just like and everyone else's how, family How old were you when the sun exploded? About 10. Yeah. yeah. Right around there. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, um, because you, you've also told these stories about how sort of the world kind of revolved around your dad as well, and all of this energy came from him, and that must have been so difficult for you to have these moments when he sort of seemed like God, and these other moments where he seemed like your child. Uh, yes, and yet he was like God, so I didn't know he was the child. Like, I didn't know I was the grown-up at the time, of course. You just think, we're just handling this in the moment. Dad <laughs> thinks the sun has exploded. We're handling it right now. Right. It'll be fine. We'll figure it out today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you, you've actually been, you've been working on this show for about the last, is it 15 months with uh, Paul Provenza? Yes, yes. Uh, ended up, started writing it in March of last year. And the way it was birthed was November of 2010, uh, Lewis Black invited me on this thing called Lou's Cruise. Lewis Black decided to have a, part of a comedy cruise, part of a cruise ship thing with 400 of his fans bringing these fun stand-ups. And so at night they'd have great stand-ups, 400 fans, but they needed a day event. And he said, well, maybe come on. He just wanted my husband and I to come on the cruise. He was like finding something for me to do. Come on, play a little video, tell some stories, because I was a storyteller. It's what I did. And I'm like, okay. And so that morning, I literally <laughs> I had a bunch of DVDs. I'm like, okay, we'll play that one and that one. And I just kind of got like eight of them in chronological order. And because I'd been working on a memoir and had read my dad's memoir, I just kind of had these vignettes in my head and had some set stories like The Sun Exploded. And uh, just got up there and played a video and told a story and played a video and told a story. And then all week long, the fans were coming up to me going, oh, we miss your dad. And that was so incredible. And it was so neat to see that side of him and to hear these stories. And... um, And so I was like, oh, okay. And then Paul got me booked at uh, the Montreal Comedy Festival in July and thought, oh, okay, now I have to write this thing. Yeah, that's that's a scary way to do it, but it, it, highly effective. Well, deadlines are important. Yeah. I mean, actually, for people like me, essential. Otherwise, yeah. nothing gets done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard that when you were reading your dad's book, there were actually, you learned a lot of stuff. I did. When you were reading his book. What was this, the biggest revelation that was in his book that you hadn't known about him? His Air Force years, I didn't know much of those stories, so that was really sweet to, to hear about that. And, and his early days with Jack Burns, and I didn't really realize that my dad, before he met Jack Burns, who he was a comedy duo with in 1960, before he met Jack, my dad was a Goldwater Republican. Wow. His mom was a Republican, a New York advertising business, and you know, this is my dad wasn't very politically minded back then. He was into funny, fi- you know, funny faces and impressions, and kind of Spike Jones and Danny Kaye. And he met Jack, and Jack was like this radical lefty commie guy, and still is, and was like, you know, hey, you got to wake up to this stuff, and started educating my dad. And within a few months, my dad was fully educated and like, okay, now I get it, now I get it. So. Well, and he, yeah, he he could have very possibly turned into Rich Little, you know, if he, you know, <laughs> that's a horrible thing to say about your father. That's and scary. I apologize. That's a really but, scary thought. <laughs> yeah. But he was very straight and narrow in the he, beginning. He was, um, although, you know, he'd smoked 
pot since he was 14. So he was basically an outsider on some level. And then in the 60s, although he looked straight, if you remember what he looked like, his short hair and the tie and everything, he was hanging out in Greenwich Village with Joan Baez and Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce. I mean, he really was this counterculture person on the inside. And really what happened was, is finally he decided his outsides had to match his insides, which is always, I think, a good sign of psychological health. And, uh, And he went for it. Yeah. Yeah. You actually, um, you told a story, I, I listened to you on Jimmy Dore's podcast, mm. and you told a story about your father watching Rick Moranis do an impression of him on SCTV, and he was really hurt by it, and that was so shocking to me, because he doesn't seem like the guy to be hurt by, by something like that. Why was he hurt? Uh, because he was being made fun of. He, he, had, he had been kind of resting on his laurels, and... Uh, this was like 79, probably, somewhere around there. And so the whole AMFM, class clown, occupation fool thing had broken in like 18 or 19 months, 1972, 1973. And he'd kind of had that for a while, and he was doing a lot of the universal, you know, kind of observational stuff. And, and it, he was just, he was becoming kind of a caricature of himself in some ways. He, he had stopped growing as an artist, basically. And, you know, the next wave, the next generation, SNL, SCTV, Steve Martin, they Mm -hmm. were all coming along. And my dad, I mean, even to the end of his career, always kept an eye on the competition. You know, my dad's like, hey, he's the cool guy, you know, he's a sharp guy too. And he's like, who's out there? Who's out there? Who's doing what? And uh, you see, I play the clip in my show, actually, and you see Rick, and it's, you go, oh, yeah, cringe. (laughs) If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Livewire, and we're talking to Kelly Carlin about her show, A Carlin Home Companion. Um, and and it was it was very interesting to hear about a time in his life where he wasn't sort of at the top of his game. I think we all know about these legends, and in our minds, they have it set for their entire career. Sure. Everything's roses From the all the outside, way through. It looks great, right? Yeah, no, but he's a human, and he was an artist. And I think anyone who's got any kind of uh, artistic bent or has a long career, you know, a lot of people hit that low and they don't come back. Yeah. They disappear or they stay there and they're doing the same act 20, 30, 40 years later. Uh, and, you know, really what happened during that time was he, he, he reshifted some things and what happened in the 80s, like the next big thing that happened for him was the stuff routine where he really took the observational thing and just really made it a beautiful, big, iconic bit, you know? And then he was kind of done with that stuff. Your stuff is stuff. Their stuff is that you can't say on the radio. Right. Right. Um, (laughs) So, but you were there through pretty much all of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you saw pretty much all of it. and, And you tell a story about what it was like to be with your dad when he was playing Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. In the story, I talk about how uh, uh, being a young child, it was 1972, so I was about nine, eight or nine, I can't remember what part of the year we were there, and um, it it was amazing. In Carnegie Hall, the, the, the dressing rooms are down in the basement, and as we, we come up from the basement, we start hearing the stomping and this chanting that was going on for like five minutes, just, George. George, George, and it's exhilarating. It's absolutely exhilarating. And my dad stepped out on the stage, and there was this roar from the crowd, and every hair on my body stood up, and and it was like I was surrounded by electricity. There was like this, just this rush of power through my body. And and although I'm young, and I know it's about my dad, and he's on stage, it's, it's intoxicating. Fame is intoxicating, and... There's some part of me that was like, oh, I like this, and all I have to do <laughs> is just stand next to Daddy, and I can have another hit of this. Which is fine, but not good if you want to individuate and become a human being later in your life. Right? <laughs> not so effective. No, it doesn't work for many decades, that mm-hmm. strategy. So, yeah. But uh, it's powerful stuff, fame, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and now that you're, you're a performer and you're performing more yourself... Do you feel like you understand your father a little bit better? You know, I kind of do. I've had a revelation last month. I was doing a show, and I was a little nervous the first half, and I went backstage, and I gave myself a note, and I came out the second half, and I was a lot freer and a lot more in my body. And my dad used to say, 
uh, you know, he used to point to the audience and say, you're not here for you, you're here for me, and I'm here for me. And I was, I've got my master's in psychology, and I used to think, oh, Dad, that's so narcissistic of you. <laughs> really? Um, uh, but I get it. Because the more you connect to yourself on stage, the more the audience is going to connect to you. And your job is not to be out there trying to figure out what they want. Your job is to be here with what's going on inside of you so that they can come in. And I'm starting to get that. And I really, it's like the one thing that I wish I could have a conversation about my dad. You know, have with, with, him. with him. Yeah, yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, well, we've all got those conversations, I know. you know, I know. that you wish you could have had. This is true. Oh, grr, death. Grr, hate it. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Well, so you're you're still working on the show, and the show is just continuing to. It is. It's evolved. The, the sketch. Uh, the sketch. The the script is pretty much set, and I'm uh, just learning as a performer. Every time I do it, I learn ten gazillion things. It's just so incredible. Well, and if people want more information about the show, they can go to kellycarlin.com. They can always go to kellycarlin.com. Excellent. It's a well, fabulous place. it's been wonderful having you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Courtney. Kelly Carlin, everybody. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, reminding you that with fresh fruits and vegetables in abundance, spring is a great time to start eating healthier, and the Whole Foods Health Starts Here label can help with the four pillars, whole, unprocessed foods, a plant-strong diet, healthy fats, and foods rich in micronutrients. Wherever you are, health starts here. More information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com. And now... It's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on a prompt. Tonight our prompt is My Life Story. And members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and we'll now read them with the help of part-time bounty hunter and extreme botanist Jim Brunberg. And now Flash Fiction. <laughs> Lindsay writes, Absorbed my twin. Carpool lane eternal. <laughs> Eliza writes, my middle name is fantastic. Cool? Susan writes, Zambian in Portland getting cold every day. Bob writes, I had hair. It was great. <laughs> Heather writes, Belly dancing was not the answer. <laughs> Stu writes, trapped under something heavy, please send help. <laughs> Excellent job, audience, on tonight's Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Shift Pale Lager, a beer as a reward for a job well done, crafted by New Belgium's employee owners for an end-of-shift beer that you can have at the end of any shift, work or PlayStation or napping. The list is endless. Thanks, New Belgium. We'll be right back.
Once again, the Aaliyah Louie Choir with cellist Gideon Freudman. Thanks very much. We're going to play our song, A House of Home, inspired by Dr. Hawthorne at the Lone First Cemetery. And this is basically a song we wrote from the perspective of two would-be um, people who received his care and their confusions uh, in that process. Um, he was also famous for um, paying for the burials of people with no family resources, and that's kind of where the song leaps off and the video picks up.
Squire. And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this entire hour to sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. You ever say good morning to someone and they don't say good morning back? Doesn't that just grind? Even if they're just ignoring you because by not saying something, they're indicating that it would be disingenuine to say good morning back. So they're saving you the embarrassment. <laughs> say good morning back. So they're saving you the embarrassment by not answering. Even if this is the case, I still want to stick a live chicken in their pants <laughs> when they don't say good morning. Because when you have a live chicken in your pants, you know it's, whoa, good morning. <laughs> Hallelujah, choir everywhere. <laughs> I guess I would be willing to walk around with a sack of live chickens all the time because the look on the non-good morning's faces would be worth it. It seems like the thing Paul Newman would do, but Paul Newman would carry a chainsaw too. Nobody ignores someone carrying a chainsaw and a bag of chickens, especially if they're a dead movie star walking into your office at 7 o'clock in the morning. Paul Newman would also chainsaw their desk in half, drop their computer on the ground, and spill their coffee all over the floor as the black smeary rain runs up and down the window like a race to nowhere on a day when it certainly isn't any kind of good morning with a live chicken in your pants deep in February where it won't even have the decency to frickin' snow but rips your mind apart with its 33-degree pitter-pat like a psychotic squirrel scratching like a list of public radio stations that will never end as if you could drive to these places and live Listen to the same damn thing you're listening to now with the exact same rain ruining your same damn day so you don't want to say good morning. I would totally do that. <laughs> Unless George Carlin was available, whacked out of his mind on cocaine, claiming that you better say good morning because the sun just exploded and this might be your last chance and you better put a chicken in your pants because you're going to need to store up food to survive the post-apocalyptic wasteland of zombies searching the endless gray dawn for a fresh brain. Zombies that might be perfectly happy until one doesn't have the zombie decency to say good morning to the other. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. guests tonight, Matt Love, Michael Dean Damron, Kelly Carlin, and the Aaliyah Louie Choir. The Mutton Chops are Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Paul Evans, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer Chelsea Kane, whose new novel Kill You Twice is available August 7th. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Our recordist is Jamie Cuddy. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many 
many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show. And then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review. And if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 